There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover to Cover series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments. So we're going to be uh, looking through again, uh, kind of a second part to the book of Job that we were at last week. Um, so we're going to be going through Job's through quite a bit of chapters, 38 through 41. So if you are got your notes there, again, we're going to be going Job chapters 38 through 41. And to start us off, let me just read for us real quick. Job 38 verses 1 through 4 it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Guys, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this time to get together. Lord, I just pray that uh, your word, as it is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, would just uh, pierce down, separating us between our, our spirit and our soul. And God, it's just we are open before you. Our hearts and minds would be open to receive your word, to understand you more, to trust you more, and ultimately to become more like you. In your son's name, amen. So last week, uh, we were going through and we, and we looked at uh, the life of Job, and, and we saw just kind of this courtroom moment uh, where Satan, the accuser, comes before God and accuses Job, who God who had called him a, a pastor, uh, and Satan says, no, he's just a hireling. And so then he, he says that he's just in it for the stuff. And that really was even a challenge for us. Are we in a relationship with God because we love God, because we trust God, uh, who has paid for our sins on the cross? Or are we just trying to receive material blessings? And so uh, though that wasn't Job, it is a question we have to ask ourselves. And what we saw through this kind of exchange between uh God and the accuser is there a lot of things that we find ourselves asking why why is this even happening and we we saw all these things unfold and just the the torment of Job's life the loss of all his material things the loss of of even just his physical health and then the 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 sad part of his three friends who who come to him and, and they start off with good intention wanting to comfort but then they got into preach mode and really out of a place of error just kind of uh misspoke about God's character out of uh, really just ignorance and lack of understanding. And we, we see to the end of that, that Job eventually comes to a place of just crying out to God, wanting to know the question why. And what we're going to be looking at today is in these three chapters, is God responding to Job? Maybe not answering the question he's asking, but responding. And so what we saw last week is there are many questions of why that are going to come in our life. And we may never know the answer to why these things happen. 
but we should never allow the uncertainty of any of our life circumstances to cause us to doubt what you do know. And we saw those words of Job, a real man who was in real pain, crying out that he knows his Redeemer lives. And that because of that living Redeemer, he too someday will share in resurrection. Now, as we get ready to go through Job's 38 through 41, just kind of a a quick overview is that really you're going to see 77 different questions actually proposed by God to Job. It's almost as if Job is receiving an exam from God himself. And now where I'm not going to go through all 77 of these questions, you really can break down the 77 questions into these three sections that that God is, is kind of using to ask these kind of three sections of this 77 question exam is, is that is, can you comprehend, God is asking Job, can you comprehend my creation? Can you care for my creation? And, and can, Job, do you even have the ability to control my creation? Now, with that, again, wanting to put things in certain perspective is to understand that, that Job falls in scripture within a certain section of, of poetic wisdom. When we look at, at, at the book of like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes and Job falls right into that. And there's a lot of poetry that's being used. And so because of that, sometimes a question gets asked of, well, is all of this just poetic information? So I actually want to share with you guys just a really quick video. Um, and as I, I share this with you guys, just kind of let it kind of maybe sink into the point of what we're going to be uh, kind of talking about today. Let's get there. All right. Scientists who play their nomenclature games. 
names And the names keep changing, how deranging life is so these scientists are the very models of a modern major general. Well, there's Ahasium, Laurentium, Darmstadtium, and Dubnium, Maitnerium, Corinicium, Muscovium, Ferrovium, Arentgenium, Rutherfordium, Nihonium, Seabornium, Avignasantanacine, Livermorium, and Borium. Antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and radium, and nickel, and dimmium, and tunium, and germanium, and iron, and erysium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, rutitium, vanadium, lanthanum, and osmium, and acetate, and radium, and polypractitinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thorium, and thallium. There's yttrium, and terbium, and actinium, and rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, and niobium, and iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismarine, and lithium, and iridium, and barium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. There may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. All right, guys. So obviously I was going to try and do that, but hopefully what kind of came out of that was, uh, hold on a second, we've got a video that's going to try and play here that I really don't want to play. No, I don't. Uh, all right. We don't, we don't want to ask about the Disney princes. All right, there we go. Bear with us with this, with me trying to do the, the multiple screen thing. Okay, so anyways, guys, what was the, the point of me sharing the video of a song that you guys have maybe all heard is that um, within Job, being in a poetic wisdom sections, there's a question of, well, isn't it just poetry? And what I wanted to show there is that entire song, the entire song is, is nothing but factual scientific statements because it's nothing but a song of the elements set to. So you, just because something is set within a genre of poetry, just because it might be done in song or have a rhythm to it, doesn't actually remove the truth of its statement. And so that's what I want us to kind of have in mind as we get ready to, to kind of dive into this section here today. Be because one of the things I would want to also bring up is really it wasn't until 1834 that the word even scientist was even used. Before then, uh, people of, of that focus, the, the study of, of learning by natural observation or by, by studying the world around, they were actually referred prior to 1834 as natural philosophers. And so as we head into a section of poetry that usually people would regard that oh that's just like philosophical statements that actually even scientists carried the title pre-1834 as a natural philosopher and so as we head into job i just want us again to to kind of have this mindset as though it's set within poetry and amazing poetry it is chock full of scientific fact and in fact that's throughout all of scripture and really as we look at job 38 through 41 and we're going to see this convergence of really science in the bible 
And, and as those two converge, even seeing within it, the stuff of legends. Now, just for those of you guys who are, are gonna be taking notes, I wanna cover a few of just the, the scientific statements that Job ends up making. So in the book of Job, um, early on in chapter nine, verse eight, th there's talk of God explaining that, that the universe is expanding. In fact, repeatedly, God declares throughout scripture in Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, that, that God declares he's stretching out the heavens. And during the, the early 20th century, most scientists, including Einstein, believed that the universe was static. Others believed um, Others believed it should have collapsed due to, to gravity. But then in 1929, an astronomer uh, by the name of Edwin Hubble showed that distant galaxies were actually receding from the earth and that the further away they were, the faster they were moving. This, this discovery revolutionized the field of astronomy and Einstein admitted his mistake. And, and to this day, most astronomers agree with what actually God, the creator told us thousands of years ago, that the universe is in fact expanding. Now. Another thing, in Job chapter 26, verse 7, uh, God will talk about the, the earth almost just kind of floating in space. It, it says that, uh, you know, that other than gravity uh, affecting the earth, this is completely contrary to the thinking of the day. While, while other sources declare that the earth sat on the back of an elephant or a turtle or, or, you know, was held up by this entity called Atlas. It was the Bible alone that stated what we now to be true is that in Job 26, 7, it says that he hung the earth on nothing. Then in Job chapter 38, uh, verse 16, we, we speak of the ocean springs and that the ocean is very deep uh, and, and that almost all the ocean floor is in total darkness and that the pressure there is so enormous that it would have been impossible for Job to have explored the springs of the sea. In fact, it wasn't until recently, it was thought that the oceans were fed only by rain uh, and rivers. Yet in the 1970s, with the help of deep sea diving research, submarines were constructed to withstand 6,000 pounds per square inch of pressure. And oceanographers discovered, in fact, there are springs on the ocean floor. We will see in Job chapter 38, verse 24, something that Isaac Newton would discover is the fact that light could be divided. Isaac Newton studied light and discovered that white light is made up of seven colors, which can be parted and then recombined. Again, science confirming what God declared so many thousands of years ago, though we've only come to understand it within the last few centuries. Job chapter 38, verses 29 uh, through 30 uh, kind of implies again what, what is mentioned in Job 37 and that's that, that this ice age that's being referred to and that prior to a global flood the earth was subtropical however like shortly after the flood the bible mentions ice often and it says again we kind of looked at this last week is by the breath of God ice is given and that the the broad waters were frozen it talked about being uh, frozen solid to walk on and again that what we see, and we kind of looked at this, is that this unique combination has to happen for an ice age as has been uh, really evidentially to, to have come about. There, there's questions of, you know, how many, how far, but really what we have to understand is that the flood and its aftershock, all those aftershocks provided volcanic dust and gases that bring the summer cooling indispensable for the ice age. And that water from the fountains of the great deep and the mixing during the flood provides a warm ocean. It is in the mid and high latitudes the, the, the warm ocean would cause copious evaporation and produce massive amounts of snow. These two ingredients are required for an ice age, cool temperatures and tons of snow, which were dramatically fulfilled immediately 
shortly after the Genesis flood. And it is this unique climate that would persist for hundreds of years after the flood as the intensity of the two mechanisms slowly decreased. One of my favorites that I've mentioned to you guys many times is that we look at the Pleiades and, and the Orion star clusters as described again in Job chapter 38. The Pleiades star clusters, its gravitational bond, while Orion, a star cluster, who is getting loose and, and, and really that they're moving away from each other. Again, 4,000 years ago, God asked Job, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loosen Orion's belt? It is only recently that we realize that the Pleiades is gravitationally bound and that Orion's belt, those stars, are, are, are moving away from each other. Animal instincts are going to be described in Job chapter 38, where we see things like a newly hatched spider weaves an intricate web without being taught, a recently emerged butterfly somehow knows to navigate 25,000 mile migration routes without a guide. And God explains in Job that he endowed each creature with specific knowledge and that it is scripture that makes it clear that it is God who is intimately involved in these creatures' design. The Bible describes dinosaurs, Job chapter 40, it's only until 1842 that Sir Richard Owen coined the word dinosaur, and really that word just means terrible lizard. And he, he did this after discovering large reptilian-like fossils. However, again, in the book of Job, 4,000 years before this, God describes the behemoth as the largest of all the land, and that he's a plant eater, a herbivore, with great strength in its hips and legs so powerful and it's with its stomach muscles and it's, its tail like a cedar tree and bones like bars of iron. This is an accurate description of a sauropod, the largest known of the dinosaur family. Oh, and, and let's not forget dragons. Yeah, dragons. Genesis 1 tells us that on day five of creation, God created sea creatures and it's, it's the word tenonym. Also, we see the word tenin used multiple times in scripture, and, it, and it's defined as a serpent, a dragon, or a sea monster. And that, again, is, it's, it's referring to certain reptiles, including the giant marine creatures and the serpentine land animals. Though translated several different ways and in different precise meanings based on context, tenin can denote a dragon and therefore can potentially refer to a dinosaur, since really all dinosaurs are dragons, these terrible lizards, though not all dragons are dinosaurs by definition. And so with all this just kind of understanding of, yes, we're looking at poetry of Job within its, its structure, but the scientific fact is no different than listening to the song of the elements. And so scientific fact revealed over and over, they'll set to a certain structure of poetry. And so it's with that, that we're going to read through Job chapter 38 through 41. And I'm actually just going to read right through it. I want you guys to, now that we've had all kind of this commentary put in, I wanted to front load it because guys, this is a unique set of scripture where three chapters, not through a prophet, not through uh, an, an individual or a human, but from the whirlwind, God himself is going to speak for three chapters. I'd say 98% of that whole section is just God speaking. Job is going to kind of respond a little bit in there. But it's within these next three chapters that God lays out a 77-question exam 
broken into the three sections that I want you guys to carry through your mind as we read through. God asking Job, can you comprehend my creation? Can you care for my creation? Can you control my creation? And so with that, guys, let us read Job chapter 38 through 41. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or, or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who, who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and a thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold the ends of the earth and the wicked shall be shaken out of it. It takes on form like clay under a seal, and it stands out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breath of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home? Do you know it because you were born then or because the numbers of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of the snow or have you seen the treasury of hail, which, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? But what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and to cause the spring forth and to cause to spring forth the growth of the tender grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the dewdrops? From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The water, waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinance of heaven? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the mind? Who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can pour out the bottles of heaven? When the dust hardens and clumps and the clods and clings together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to, to lie in wait, who provides food for the raven when the young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or, or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down and bring forth their young. They deliver their offspring. Their young ones are healthy. They grow strong with grain. They depart and do not return to them. Who set 
the wild donkey free, who loosed the bonds of the onager, whose home I have made in the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling. He scorns the torment of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pleasure and he searches after every green thing. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrows with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her egg on the ground and, and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God has deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like locusts? His majestic snorting strikes terror. His, he paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and shouting. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? On the rock it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock in the stronghold. From there it spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar. Its young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there it is. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hands over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God or can you thunder with, his, with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place, hide them in their dust together, bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Look now at the behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength in his hips and his power in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert and in a covert of reeds and marsh. 
The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose, or one pierces his nose with a snare. God's power in the Leviathan. Can you draw out the Leviathan with a hook or a snare in his tongue, with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? He will make many supplications to you. He will speak soft. Will he make suppl many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will, he, will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as, as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they abortion him among, apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up as tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out, smoke goes out of his nostrils and from a boiling pot and burning rushes, his breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together they are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are like sharp pot shards. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. On the earth, there is nothing like him, which is made without fear. He beholds everything. He is king over all the children of pride. And guys, with that, as we get ready to, to end out this morning, I know this is a little bit different. We are going to uh, watch one more video um, that I think will, will help us out and just kind of putting all of this in perspective. So just a moment here.
book of Job. It's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite. And the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realms, and God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. The prologue is setting up the real questions this book is trying to get at. Questions about God's justice and whether God operates the universe according to the strict principle of justice. And the response to those questions comes as you read through to the end of the book, not at the beginning. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering is simply never revealed. So the prologue concludes with a suffering and bewildered Job who's rebuked by his wife and he's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They're all non-Israelites like Job. And they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition. And this moves us into the main part of the book. First, Job speaks. And this is how the section of the book works. First, Job is going to speak, and then they'll follow a response from a friend. Then Job will respond to that friend. Then another friend will respond to Job's response, and so on, back and forth, for three cycles. And this whole debate is focused on three questions. Is God truly just in character? And does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? As we're going to see, Job and the friends, they're working from a huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person and you honor God, good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things, Bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now, Job's constant argument throughout his speeches is this. First of all, that he's innocent. And so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now, we know from the prologue, both of these things are true. Remember, God himself said, Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. 
God either doesn't run the world according to justice or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. The friends, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just, the implication being that God always runs the world according to justice in this way. And so they conclude by accusing not God, but Job. Job must have done something really, really bad for God to punish him like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have committed. Job protests to all of this. In fact, he gets so fed up with the friends that he eventually just gives up on them. He takes up his case directly with God. Now, something to be aware of is that Job, he's on an emotional roller coaster in these poems. He used to think that God is just, but now he can't reconcile that with his suffering. And so in some outbursts, Job, he'll accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that thought, he's terrified of it because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. Job is all over the place in this section. And so he makes one last statement of his innocence, and then he demands that God show up personally to explain himself. Now it's at this point that a surprise friend shows up, Elihu the Buzite. Now he's not an Israelite, but he does have a Hebrew name. And Elihu, he has the same assumption as Job and the friends. He argues that God is just, and that that implies that God always operates the universe according to justice. But then Elihu draws a more sophisticated conclusion about why good people suffer. It may not be punishment for sin in the past. God might inflict suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or God might use pain and suffering to build character or to teach people valuable lessons. Elihu doesn't claim to know why Job is suffering, but one thing he is certain of, Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. Job doesn't even respond to Elihu and the dialogues come to a close. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent and the mystery remains. And then, all of a sudden, God shows up in a whirlwind, and he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. So God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe, and he starts asking him all these questions about the order and origins of the cosmos. Was Job ever around when God architected the earth or organized the constellations? Has Job ever commanded the sunrise or controlled the weather? God has his eyes on all of these cosmic details that Job has never even conceived of. Then God starts going into detail, describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth or the feeding patterns of lions and wild donkeys. What's the point of all this? Remember the assumption of Job and his friends about what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice. Underneath that assumption is a deeper one, that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim about how God ought to run the world. And God's response with this virtual tour, it deconstructs all of these assumptions. It first of all shows that the universe is a vast, complex place and that God has his eyes on all of it, every detail. Job, on the other hand, has only the small horizon of his life experience to draw from. His view of the world is very limited. And so what looks like divine injustice, from Job's point of view, needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job is simply not in a position to make such a huge accusation about God. After the virtual tour, God asks Job if he would like to micromanage the world for a day according to the strict principle of justice that Job and his friends assume. 
punishing every evil deed of every person at every moment with precise retribution. The fact is that carrying out justice in a world like ours, it's extremely complex. It's never black and white like Job and the friends seem to think. Which leads to God's last point. He starts describing these two fantastic creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, which some people think are poetic depictions of a hippo and a crocodile. But more likely, they refer to well-known creatures from ancient Near Eastern mythology that are used elsewhere in the Bible as symbols of the disorder and danger that exist in God's good world. These creatures, they're not evil. God's actually quite proud of them, but they're not safe either. The point is that God's world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect or always safe. God's world has order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, just like these two fantastic creatures. And so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or from other humans, God doesn't explain why. What he says is that we live in an extremely complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice. God responds that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. Job demanded a full explanation from God. And what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. And so Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. Then all of a sudden the book concludes with a short epilogue. First God says that the friends were wrong, that their ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. And then God says that Job has spoken rightly about him. Now this is surprising because it can't apply to everything Job said. I mean, we know Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, but God still approves of Job's wrestling, how Job came honestly before God with all of his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says that's the right way to process through all of this, through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, his family, his wealth all restored, not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God. And that's the end of the book. So the book of Job, it doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like the friends, or like Job, accuse God, but based on limited evidence. And so the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he's doing. And that's what the book of Job is all about. All right, guys. So I hope that kind of did, did a good job of kind of summarizing everything we've gone through in the book of Job. And if there's, I, I mentioned earlier that this 38 through 41, the 77 question exam was really God asking Job three main questions. Job, can you comprehend my creation? Job, can you care for my creation? Job, can you control my creation? And the reason, as the video stated, is, is what ends up being brought to light as though Job was making with his limited perspective and lack of evidence 
character statements about God, that he brought those before God and that, that God wants us to do that. So for, for anyone this morning who, again, during this time of isolation, during any moment in your life where you, you ask yourself, why God, why is this happening? Would we take this moment from a real man in a real world with real pain? As God drove him to understand something, Joe, you may not comprehend my creation, but guys, God knows. God knows what's going on in your life. God asked, Joe, can you care for my creation? Guys, God cares. God doesn't just know about you. He cares about you way more. As, as, as God would say in Matthew, when he talks about the birds, aren't you not more valuable than them? And so as we looked at all these patterns of these animals that, that God is talking about in Job to understand you, made in his image, are way more important than any of that. And he, he knows you and cares for you. And in this moment of wondering how, What's going on? I'm getting information from all. Is there any, is there any, does anyone have the reins of this thing? Is that by describing these two dangerously but powerful creatures that God's proud of, this dinosaur and dragon, that God says, I, I, I control, I am in control of that sort of power. God is in control. So Job, can you comprehend my creation? No, but God knows. Job, can you care for my creation? No, but God cares. Job, can you control my creation? No, but God is in control. And that's the same truth for you today. God knows what's going on in your world. God cares for you and God is in control. So as we leave this morning, I want to leave with the words that we heard from Job last week. In Job chapter 19, the words that God said, he spoke rightly. The words that Job said of this book that is the oldest book of scripture. And that poetically brings all of the, the, the books of wisdom in, into a place of understanding. That scientific evidence over and over proves to be true and right. Let these words stand out as the true and right words that you hold to. As Job would cry out prophetically in Job chapter 19, verse 23 and 27, Job would declare, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron and a lead pen forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand on, at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Let's pray. Father, would our heart yearn for your coming? God, for anyone out there this morning to, to hear this message today, God, who's feeling, God, do you see, do you know, do you care? But they see this life of this man, this, this man named Job, who, who you you pointed out as, as blameless, as a good pastor, as a good shepherd. And Father, you, for some reason in your sovereign wisdom, allowed for him to go through this trial that we 
may see of it and come to learn to trust you, the God who knows, the God who cares, the God who's in control. And if you would care, Lord, for the wild donkey or the hawk or the Leviathan and behemoth, Lord, how much more have you declared that you care for us, the ones that you paid for on the cross by the shedding of your blood and offer the new life in your resurrection that Job looked forward to. And Lord, I pray that all of us would as well. In your son's name, amen. The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derives from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music you've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at SickosBeatSuck797. My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal.